Stay hungry, stay foolish. Our guest today argues that we have now reached a turning point in history from which creating competitive advantage may no longer be in the best interests of an organization. He presents today's business and social challenges through a new strategic lens and offers this book as a practical guide to help creating collaborative advantage. He discusses world-leading techniques to enable us to mobilize staff, partners, collaborators, and customers around a common purpose that gets everyone firmly on your side, to build greater loyalty, to generate greater income, and to forge more ambitious partnerships. We welcome strategic consultant, social entrepreneur, and the author of Collaborative Advantage, How Collaboration Beats Competition as a Strategy for Success, Paul Skinner. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Aidan. It's great to be on the show. I love the way, Paul, you introduced the book, where you imagine a world where the rebels rather than the rulers get a chance to build. The inspiration for that comment was that I'd been reading the book The English Rebel by the historian David Horsepool. And I was struck by a couple of things. He describes the history of English rebellion as essentially a history of failure. And he has this magnificent opening line where he writes that rebels, unlike their rulers, rarely get the opportunity to build things. And of course, the implication is that it's the rulers who have the resources with which to build and to, to leave their mark visibly on the world. And it had struck me that there was a parallel between that observation and conventional approaches to business strategy, which imply that it's the exploitation of the resources that we own, manage and control that determines our success. But I came to the view that in our ever more interconnected world, the limiting factor on our success might actually be the quality of our ideas, the degree of influence that we can bring to bear on the world, the quality and the value of our relationships. And so that comment about imagining a world in which rebels get to build things rather than their rulers is part of an opening invitation to the reader to see the process of creating collaborative advantage as an opportunity to set our sights much higher in terms of what we're able to achieve with whatever resource level we happen to have. With regards collaborative advantage, you talk about it's our uniquely human mind that enables us to collaborate. And this is what got us to the top of the food chain at the moment in the world until AI maybe <laughs> starts threatening us. But at the moment, we're at the top of the food chain because we can collaborate and because we can assemble people towards a common cause or a common purpose. It's interesting that you pick up on that. Funnily enough, Ben and Jerry, the founders of the ice cream company, Ben and Jerry's, have been kind enough to, to review the book ahead of its US launch next month. And they've picked up on exactly the same thing in their review, saying that while anything can compete, what makes us unique as humans is our near miraculous capacity for cooperation. Uh, and I think that's true. I mean, even Usain Bolt probably couldn't outsprint a Jaguar. But if you try asking a Jaguar to organize a charity fun run, for example, then you're going to be very disappointed. We are natural born problem solvers. And we solve our problems with stories. The first problem that we solve is where to go whether literally or metaphorically, evolutionary biologists even speculate that it's our ability to move with intentionality that, that 
caused us to evolve brains in the first place. Because of course, moving requires us to know where we've been, where we are, and where we could get to. In other words, it requires us to know past, present, and future, or the beginning, middle, or end of a story. And one of those three components will be at the center of almost anything we ever say or think. Now, of course, the magic of cooperation begins when we diversify the range of problems we can solve by sharing these stories with each other, as, as we're doing all the time. And ultimately, it's our uniquely complex language which enables us to develop social constructs, such as the very ideas of our businesses, um, which like the ideas of countries, for example, um, as Yuval Noah Harari writes persuasively in Sapiens, are things that don't necessarily exist in a literal way, uh, but are rather concepts that enable us to have a shared understanding to buy into shared, um, to accept the same assumptions, to develop mechanisms of cooperation that can ultimately spread right around the world at a level of sophistication and scale that, that, as you point out, is clearly unmatched by any other species. And one of the things I'm trying to do in my book, Collaborative Advantage, is to make it easier for leaders to put the right kind of cooperation enabling ideas at the heart of their businesses to maximize the success that they can achieve. Before we focus fully on collaborative advantage itself and talk about your outside in framework, let's talk about the main factors contributing to the rise of competitive advantage in the past. So this is kind of the foundation of business as we know it today, unfortunately, and we're still living with the remnants of that. Let's give a quick history of the rise of competitive advantage and the dominant way we've done business to date. I suppose something we're very familiar with today is we're, we're coming across new concepts in business strategy all the time and familiar with the idea that you can gain business advantage both from having a better strategy, but also from having a better idea of how you create strategy in the first place. But looking into the history of competitive uh, advantage for the book, I discovered, first of all, that competitive advantage was, of course, the first big idea in the history of business strategy. But perhaps more surprisingly, that the very idea of strategy as a thing in business wasn't really conceived of before the 1960s, where the word was really only used in writing about politics and warfare. The word competition hadn't been used in business literature before the 1960s, certainly not extensively. And of course, there hadn't been the provision of strategic advisory services to help business leaders to develop better strategies. But those three things, strategy, competition, advisory services, were all born at one and the same time in response to what was an early wave of market liberalization when the key challenge facing business was perhaps most centrally that domestic manufacturers were finding often for the first time that businesses were entering their markets from overseas and they were losing some of their customers to these businesses. So those conditions created um, what you might describe as sort of very dry wood 
for the flame of the idea of competitive advantage to take hold. Um, and so it's perhaps for that reason that the concept of competitive advantage when developed um, and the metaphor more broadly of competition and competitiveness in business have really had a, an absolute stronghold on our understanding of how to unlock success in business ever since and pervaded so much of our thinking in economic development. I thought it was really interesting, the overview you gave of strategic consulting and that the different models proposed by BCG, McKinsey and Bain, that all these people came from a similar background, which was finance, which is why we see in a way what you call the tyranny of finance. Essentially, the rise of competitive advantage came in the form of four different vo versions of the same story. First of all, we had Bruce Henderson, who founded the Boston Consulting Group, who essentially took a known model at the time, the experience curve, which posits that the greater a volume in which you produce something, the lower the, the unit cost is likely to be, but related that for the first time to the idea of competition, because if you are specifically producing in higher volume than anyone else in the market, you're likely to have a cost advantage. Then Ed Bain pioneered the application of the three C's or cost customers and competitors through Bain & Co. He'd actually began his career at the Boston Consulting Group, but they ran their three internal divisions in competition with each other because they were so obsessed with this idea of competition. Ed led the division that prevailed in that internal competition. And so perhaps unsurprisingly and somewhat ironically, as a result, decided that he and his leadership team could form their own firm and outcompete BCG. And so that's what gave rise to the birth of Bain & Co as BCG's most dangerous competitor. Fred Gluck at McKinsey was brave enough to tell his bosses that he felt that in response to these new offerings, McKinsey didn't really know what it was doing. So he was given um, the mission of solving that problem and heading up their advisory work and eventually became CEO of McKinsey. And then, of course, we had Michael Porter at Harvard Business School, who defined the concept competitive advantage and who is to this day the most cited writer in the history of writing about business strategy and who bridged the worlds of the economics faculty that had studied businesses, but only in aggregate to create models to predict trends and so on. And the world of the business school, which had only ever studied individual business cases and had never sought to create generalized ideas that could be applicable from one case to another. So they were all financiers. Three of them had master's degrees in engineering and PhDs in microeconomics. And each in their own way was bringing to bear the tools of the financier to bear on analyzing the resources that we own, manage and control to create that competitive advantage. And it may be for that reason that to this day, the big advisory firms do still tend to be dominated by financiers. And of course, I would suggest that in our ever more interconnected world, where so much of our value is created through our relationships and things that we influence rather than control, that if we were to scrap those strategic advisory services today and something else were to be born in their place, what would come in their place might well look very different and be led by a very different profile of leader than the ones that we currently have. So we're seeing 
the death of competitive advantage or at least an evolution from competitive advantage to collaborative advantage, which is the focus of the book. Let's dive into that a bit, Paul, and explain what collaborative advantage is. Collaborative advantage uh, is the process or creating collaborative advantage is a process of creating business advantage by maximizing the value creating potential that we can harness both outside as well as inside the business. It's a radical alternative to competitive advantage with, I think, three main benefits. First of all, it can help us overcome what I see as the core limitations of competitive advantage, which limits the kinds of opportunity we can even perceive in the first place, let alone achieve. Secondly, it's something that we can use to grow our businesses more quickly and efficiently by better harnessing the fuller value creating potential of the environment in which we operate and also of our customers as active creators of value in their own right, or in the case of a nonprofit, to accelerate social change by more strongly harnessing our collective agency, and in particular, the active agency of the groups we're most looking to support, and which can also help us to, thirdly, embed a more inspiring purpose in our businesses. All of the literature that I've most persuasively come across on happiness tends to imply that we achieve happiness best, not by seeking to become happy, but rather by seeking to become or contribute to something bigger than ourselves. And when we work for a business that is genuinely trying to make a meaningful contribution to people's lives, I think it's much easier for that work to feel more like a vocation and to bring more of our creative energy to work. And similarly for customers, it's far more appealing to be served by a business that we can feel is genuinely on our side in some way in helping us to make the most of life. Um, so it's a, a broad concept. And I'm coming across illustrations of it all the time. I'm, I'm actually just back from talking about collaborative advantage in Rotterdam, where I came across three illustrations of this point before I'd even arrived at my hotel. So first of all, it was my first time in Rotterdam. And the first thing I learned about the history of the city was that it had become a great city historically, not so much by competing with the world's other great cities, but rather by being connected to them through its magnificent port. When I arrived at the uh, Rotterdam Central Station, the first thing I found in the supermarket in the station was a bottle which was part of their city water scheme, where you can buy bottles of water that are reusable for not much of a different price to the, the price you might pay for a single-use bottle of mineral water, but with the difference that when you buy that bottle you're making a contribution to sustainable water schemes and developing economies. The bottle is reusable, and in exchange for that, you can take it to various pipes across the city and get access to free tap water to refill the bottle to keep yourself refreshed while you're exploring Rotterdam. And then thirdly, just before I got to my hotel, I passed a gym that was called Train More Gyms, and with the tagline, Train More, Pay Less, so I was really intrigued and went inside and met the person who'd opened the Rotterdam Trainmore gym, which was part of a, a burgeoning chain. And she explained to me that the founder of the gyms had previously owned a chain of gyms, which had gone bankrupt. 
and he'd become cynical about the business model of gyms, where gyms actually are quite happy to have members that never come. Because if you're paying your monthly subscription and don't turn up, it leaves them quite profitable as a gym. He instead wanted to create a gym that was actively on the side of its members getting into shape. So he developed the idea, train more, pay less, where they charge a monthly subscription. The Rotterdam gym was 29 euros a month. But every day that you go in and train in that gym, they take one euro off that month's subscription price. So quite literally, if you train every day, you don't pay anything. Now, he was told by investors, you're crazy, you'll go bankrupt a second time. But he found a way to make it work. It worked with his first gym. He now has, I think, eight gyms across Amsterdam. He's spreading right across the Netherlands and now has 16 million euros of investment to expand into other countries. So being on the side of your customers can really pay dividends for the business owners as well. You talk about the term negative externalities in that respect, and it makes total sense. And hopefully we're seeing an end to negative externalities in the business world. A negative externality is essentially the idea that there are costs generated by a business, but which are not born by the business and which are therefore born by the rest of us. So to give a micro and a macro example, if we take a nightclub, it might provide a very entertaining environment for the people partying, but it could also create noise pollution to the detriment of people living in the vicinity of the nightclub that could harm their well-being, that could even harm their economic value-creating potential if, if they're tired when they get to work in the morning. Um, or at a macro level, we might think of you know the biggest externalities are things like environmental resource depletion and, and climate change. Now, I'm not sure that I or anyone could actually have the answers to addressing all negative externalities. Um, but I think that collaborative advantage, as presented in the book, does provide tools that readers and, and leaders can use to create their own answers. And I think that where negative externalities are costs that are essentially borne by all of us, it's very difficult to see the concept of competitive advantage as a way to overcoming those. Um, competitive advantage is about creating a, 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 a win. A win condition in a competition is when you defeat others. It's a win for yourself. I think the idea of collaborative advantage is actually about creating a much bigger win, a win for the business, in fact, a bigger win for the business. Um, but by creating better wins for customers and better wins for the communities that we live, work and operate in as well. We're seeing a huge shift towards stakeholder value as opposed to shareholder value, which has been the main reason businesses seem to exist in the past. And hopefully this is why we're seeing a shift towards purpose and the circular economy. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, you could suggest that competitive advantage was to shareholder value, what collaborative advantage can be to, to broader stakeholder value. Um, and I think that's what what business, it, in some ways, it gets us back to the origins of business in the first place. Um, a business should be about contributing as well as receiving. You know, if, if you're my customer and I'm a business and I'm not doing something that helps you improve your life, then why should I exist as a business? Um, if I'm not doing it in a way that also makes sense for me as a business and for the community that we live and work in, then how can I really exist as a business? And that fundamental cooperative nature of business is almost embarrassingly obvious. 
But I would say that the concept of competitive advantage may have overshadowed that essentially cooperative nature in, in, in business activity and given rise to many of these negative externalities and, and many of the um, downsides that we've seen in business and global business, as well as perhaps limiting the upsides unnecessarily as well. And I thought it was interesting, Paul, you said about your, your research on happiness and that collaboration or the sense of giving towards a higher purpose much bigger than ourselves can lead to happiness because you talk about some brain research that the brain is actually activated differently when we collaborate, when we work as a community, when we give to a bigger, higher cause than ourselves. I think the research you might be referring to is the research from the University of Washington at their Social Cognitive Neuroscience Laboratory. They ran some research where they invited participants to come in and to play a computer game that involved them in solving a problem. And it could be played in two modes. It could be played in competition with another participant or in cooperation with another participant. And the researchers ran fMRI scans of the participants' brains while they were solving those problems, which you know w- were the same problems. It was just the mode of competition or cooperation that changed. And what they discovered was that even solving the same problem in those different modes, the participants were accessing and using different parts of their brain. So in the competitive mode, they were primarily using the inferior parietal and medial prefrontal cortices of the brain. Whereas in the cooperative mode, they were primarily using their orbitofrontal cortex. And in, interestingly, the parts of the brain that were activated in the competitive mode tend to respond to extrinsic rewards. Whereas the parts of the brain activated in the cooperative mode are parts of the brain that tend to respond to intrinsic rewards, um, such as empathy and social connection. So the researchers drew the conclusion that cooperation can be in and of itself a socially rewarding process. But I think more broadly than that, um, what this maybe reminds us um, is that it's possible that a different psychological profile may be effective in creating collaborative advantage to the psychological profile that has been effective in creating competitive advantage. Collaborative advantage necessarily begins with the unknown in that it begins with other people. And so qualities such as empathy, um, skills such as influence building, perhaps become relatively more important. Peter Bazalgette has written a a book on empathy where he suggests that in the very near future, people might take fMRI scans to help help profile themselves for what kind of line of work they might be adapted to. Um, He gives the example of the medical profession, for example, Mm -hmm. where you would want a a GP or a nurse to have high levels of empathy. Um, In some ways, a surgeon, for example, um, you might want them to be able to turn their empathy off because at the moment of cutting into you, you don't want them to to suddenly get a bit emotional. And, and actually that shift is clear in even job specs at the moment. I mean, if you look at the top 10 skills of the work of the future type of things, these type of studies that you see, emotional intelligence and empathy are always high on the list. And many people don't know why, but it made sense to me when I was reading the book that this is why, because you have to see beyond the 
business as a competitive set. It's not you against your competitor. It's you plus your competitor in a much wider ecosystem, including people on the planet. So that changes the game and that changes how you need to approach every single problem. Yes, I, I think that's absolutely right. To create collaborative advantage, you need to be able to perceive the world through other people's eyes. And that's a, a fundamental source of your ability to create value with them. On that, right, we're not just going to tell people what it is. We're going to actually look a little bit about how you can do this now because you've created this fantastic five-part outside-in framework. Let's delve into that a little bit and discuss the five elements. Yes. So the outside-in framework identifies dynamic capabilities that we can use to grow our businesses more quickly. And as you say, it comes in five parts. So the first part is, is about finding common purpose. And the approach I propose to that in the book is to see the business as an enabler of change rather than as a deliverer of change. So this can be about moving away from competitive questions such as what do we do best and towards collaborative questions such as what do we enable people to do better. We then move on in step two to making innovation more useful by structuring it in the form of the right opportunities for people to pursue that purpose. So that can be about putting powerful cooperation enabling ideas at the heart of our um, customer offerings, at the heart of our value creation process, at the heart of our business models, at the heart of our service delivery mechanisms. We then move on to making engagement more effective by designing an environment that is conducive to the particular purpose that we're enabling people to pursue. Uh, in the book, for example, I talk about the concept of extended cognition, which implies that our choices are so heavily influenced by the environment in which we take them that it's almost as if our decisions are structured in the world around us rather than inside our own minds. So this can be about making changes to our internal environment, our external environment, our social environment, our physical environment, and so on. Step four is about mainstreaming the change that we're seeking to enable um, through a process of iteration and acceleration. This is about working with our early adopters to better understand and adapt to their needs and responding to how they behave in practice, by the way, as opposed to what they say they will do, what we think they will do, or what classical economics tells us they should do. And it's about using their influence to reach a broader mainstream, and thereby helping us overcome one of the most uh, regular challenges in business, where we successfully get early sales, but struggle to reach that bigger commercial base that makes an offering viable in the longer term. And then the fifth step is to build partnerships that help us scale further and faster than we could alone. Um, and three ingredients that I suggest for creating great partnerships include, first of all, a good shared understanding of that end user purpose we're enabling. Secondly, an effective alignment of the interests of the organizations around that purpose. And then thirdly, as a result of those two things, the ability to adapt and, and grow that partnership over time. So, Paul, just going to dive into some of the elements you talked about there. So, the common purpose one, which is purpose, is really, really having its day. Like, we're, it's really coming to the top of the f importance list. That's terrible. I really need coffee, man. 
Well, I'd love to come back to purpose because purpose is very much at the forefront of many business leaders' mind. You talk not just about brand identity here, but a brand agenda. And I thought that was a great term that we might dive into a little bit further. In the era of competitive advantage, your brand identity, in a sense, was there to determine everything. It was an organizing principle of strategy. You'd want that brand identity to be reflected in everything that you did, and you wouldn't want anything to deviate from that and undermine it. Now, I don't propose we scrap brand identity. Brand identity is is massively important. It makes it easier for people to find us, easier for people to know what they can get from us. Um, so it's tremendously important. But in creating collaborative advantage, I would say our own identity is less the organizing principle of strategy. Um, and rather, we would organize our strategy around the end user purpose that we are enabling. So as you say, there's a lot of talk about purpose, but people rarely ask the question, well, whose purpose is it to begin with? And I would say that if our customers are the primary value creators, then it makes sense to begin with the purpose we can enable them to pursue, and then to make that purpose common by working uh, ourselves and with our collaborators and partners to build common purpose around enabling that pursuit. So the organizing principle of strategy becomes orientated around the purpose we're enabling rather than ourselves as an identity. Here you give a great example of Coca-Cola, for example, not seeing the competition as other fizzy liquid, but essentially someone that's competed for a moment of happiness or that moment or that experience that Coca-Cola is targeting. Yes, that's right. I mean, Coke have a long history of essentially inviting people to enjoy a moment of happiness when they drink Coke. And um, that's been at the heart of their marketing ever since they first popularized the concept of, of, of Santa Claus. I mean, and I think that that, that process uh, is replicated by other soft drinks manu manufacturers, by the way. So if we take the example of Red Bull, for example, um, in a sense, we might see them as a competitor to Coke. But if you were Red Bull launching your drink and you wanted to compete with Coke, your natural instincts might be, for example, to make a larger bottle so people get more of your drink or to try to create a better flavor so that people prefer your drink or maybe to try to undercut Coke on price. But you might have already spotted that Red Bull doesn't do any of these things. They charge a fortune. Um, the taste is absolutely disgusting. Um, and you barely get any of it in a can. Um, and of course, that works <laughs> because when you have to pay a large sum of money for a very small amount and it tastes awful, you think, well, this drink really must do something. <laughs> and of course, what Red Bull are trying to enable you to do when you drink Red Bull is in some way or other to live a more extreme life, to unlock a bit more energy and to, to go about some kind of activity in a more daredevil way than you would have done if you hadn't been drinking Red Bull. So that's a great example of offering people a different purpose to pursue as a way of unlocking success in market conditions that would have otherwise been extremely difficult. And I love what you say about purpose, that you need to be relentless about purpose as a business leader or a business, but you need to be so open-minded about how purpose can be achieved. A study by EY that I cite in the book measured 
the business success of nearly 500 businesses and found that businesses that actually use purpose as a decision-making tool were more successful across every metric that they could measure than businesses that didn't. I'm a big fan of enabling people to bring their whole selves to work and to, to bring their full creativity to bear on their work. Now, the more that you want people to be creative, the more you want people to bring their whole selves to work. In some sense, the clearer you have to be about purpose, because with all of that creativity and so on, if people aren't pursuing exactly the same purpose, then that creativity may be too divergent and may actually different people's creativity may essentially cancel each other out. Whereas if you have a powerful mobilizing purpose, then that becomes something far more evolutionary that you can collectively tune into and get better at over time. And one of the things that I'm specifically doing in talking about collaborative advantage is helping people to see purpose as something where you're not just unlocking the value creating potential inside the business with purpose, but actually achieving even more ambitious and powerful results by unlocking the value creating potential of purpose outside as well as inside the organization. You talk about the importance of co-creation and prosumerism. So where the outside has an input into the products you're making or into the service that you provide. But you also talk about when you want to activate collaborative advantage, that one thing that many leaders fail to do is engage their people in the decision-making process, fail to engage the actual workers within the company in the future of the business, in developing the strategy, because when they're part of it, they're way more engaged. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, there was some research from McKinsey that I was reading recently that suggests that businesses that involve people in transformation are five times more likely to succeed in their own terms than businesses that don't. So I think you're absolutely spot on there. It might, however, be useful to draw a distinction between collaborative advantage and a number of other things relating to consultation that might sound a bit like collaborative advantage and are good things, but are different concepts. So collaborative advantage is a process of creating business advantage by better harnessing the fullest possible value creating potential outside as well as inside the business. And so we would always unambiguously want more of that. If we look at some other things, it's a bit different. So take collaboration, for example. Collaboration is, of course, a great thing. You'd be surprised if somebody who's written my book would say otherwise. But the answer isn't always just to have more of it. A study by Harvard a couple of years ago found that managers were often already spending up to 80% of their time on collaborative activity. And so the answer to achieving more can't simply be more collaboration because that 20% of their time uh, is all the time they have left for quiet thinking and for, for deep reflection and so on, which is of course so precious and valuable. Um, collaborative advantage is also not the same as compromise. Um, so again, compromise is a good thing. The world is better off for compromise, but it's not always the answer. So we can agree, agree to drive on the left-hand side of the road, for example, such as in Ireland. We can all agree to drive on the right-hand side of the road, such as in France. But there are contexts, such as that one, where one thing we don't want to do is to, to meet in the middle. 
And then equally in terms of consultation, consultation is a great thing. It helps us understand more. It helps us involve people more. But the answer isn't always just more consultation. Sometimes having a very clear purpose can actually help us to be more efficient in our consultation. Um, Steve Jobs, for example, um, once famously remarked that he knew that an Apple device was ready to be launched, not when extensive market research told him so, but when that device was so appealing that it made him want to lick it, for example. I find it really interesting, and I fully agree with what you say in the book, where business leaders or transformation workers or rebels, as you open the book with, need a channel of focus through which to drive change. And I think that's often overlooked by businesses that they need some element to pick to, like, for example, Paul O'Neill in Alcoa is a famous story about picking the habit of safety. So he picked safety as a keystone habit in order to transform the business. But you talk about these channels of focus being absolutely essential for a business to drive change. Yes, that's absolutely right. And and actually, a lot of my work on collaborative advantage has been about unpicking concepts which are so related to competitive advantage and which assume that the magic is what happens inside a business rather than outside a business. So if we look, for example, at the whole history of change management, implied in that idea is the idea that um, change happens in the outside world, but our role in business is simply to manage the change that happens internally. And that's how we unlock our success. Whereas I would say that actually we need a much more outward looking vision. Um, success in business doesn't really come from change management. I think more ambitious success can come from what we might describe as change acceleration. <laughs> Uh, and if we think of ourselves in business as being change accelerators, albeit in a commercial context, then that means that we might start looking to a whole range of tools from outside the business world to help us develop the expertise in change acceleration. We might look to the nonprofit world, for example, which has um, dedicated itself um, throughout its history to better understanding processes of change and to better enabling them. We might look to the world of psychology and even therapy, for example, to understand how we help people through a process of change, whether it's a, a deep and meaningful um, uh, new direction for their lives or whether it's just something that's, that's fun, but enabling people to change in ways that mean they can enjoy a bit more fun on the weekend. So um, whatever line of work we're in, I think seeing ourselves as accelerators of change invites us to be more ambitious in the results we seek to achieve and to draw on a more sophisticated range of tools, a more powerful range of tools in terms of how we might unlock that success. Yeah, and I love the way you did this, Paul. We should share the work you've done with Pimp My Cause because you talked about your own moment where you questioned yourself as a change maker in the role you did in marketing and, and consulting where you went above it and you went how can i make a huge change with this rather than just do a job and i loved the concept you came up with which is pimp my cause that experience that you're talking about was a positive life-changing experience for me i was simply out running one day but i'd just been meditating and when you meditate you bring your mind to silence. And I think the experience of doing that 
and experiencing the space between thoughts maybe just help me to perceive more clearly that the value comes in the spaces between things. It's quite difficult to have an idea, for example. Rather, we create the spaces for ideas to emerge in between our thoughts, and then we can use our conscious minds to develop those ideas, but we can't just sort of have an idea on command. Similarly, greater value can be unlocked in the spaces between us as people than within us as individuals. And having been meditating and just enjoying that silence that unifies us and brings us together, I was quietly reflecting on, on what marketing can achieve and, and my profession as a marketer and, and thinking, you know, is there really a point to it? And I started to think that essentially marketing provides that necessary junction point between production and consumption. You know, unless marketing comes along, to formulate resources, to form resources as a proposition for people to buy into, then economic activity can't happen in the first place. And of course, if marketing is done in the most useful possible way, then what we end up achieving is, is essentially harnessing the world's resources to create um, greater uh, good in the world. And so it inspired me to see the process of using the tools of influence as a vocation. And I think that that experience was quietly perhaps the inception of my thinking on collaborative advantage. Um, and to relate my book to my work activities, as you suggest, um, I would say that uh, everything that I do uh, professionally is about enabling people to create collaborative advantage. That's what's become my vocation, as it were. Um, and the book is one side of what could be a, a three-sided coin, if you could have a three-sided coin, in that as well as the book, I, I do my advisory work through the Agency of the Future, where we help leadership teams achieve more ambitious results by creating collaborative advantage in practice. And I run the social enterprise, Print My Cause, which connects marketing professionals with charities and social enterprises that they can support with their marketing talent and get better at marketing themselves, developing their own marketing capabilities in the process. Um, and that has been an absolute living laboratory of collaborative advantage in practice. We have uh, just over two and a half thousand causes on the platform, almost all of which are run by people that we could describe as absolute ninjas of higher purpose, you know, really relentlessly pursuing the particular purpose that brought their organization into being. Then even quite small charities and social enterprises are fantastic test beds for exploring approaches to collaboration because they typically need to align the interests of quite complex stakeholder environments when we consider their, their beneficiaries, their service users, their customers, their volunteers, their advocates, their donors, their partners, and so on. And then along come our marketers with their tools of creativity, and they apply that creativity to the cause purpose to unlock greater, more impactful, and more sustainable levels of collaboration. 
And those three ingredients of purpose, creativity, and collaboration uh, have just contributed so much to my thinking on the development of collaborative advantage and to the particular tools that I develop in the book to make it easier for the reader to create collaborative advantage for their own business or organization. I love when that happens, Paul, where you put yourself out there and you push yourself. And like you say, we're these amazing future creators or problem solvers and the dots connect in the future. And we don't know right now why we're doing what we do. So what you did with Pin My Cause, you did that work, a huge amount of energy and effort put into it. And then the dots connect in the future and becomes a, the genesis for your book and it connects with your work and it gives purpose to your, your whole life. I mean, I can present the different aspects of my work as, as, as th three aspects of the same thing. Um, and I think they all emerged a bit more organically than that. And it's perhaps that, that worldview that was coming into focus and crystallizing through the practice of the activity um, that now makes sense of it all and, and provides coherence and, and gives me the mission that I'm pursuing in my work. To finish up, we'll, we'll, let's talk about how we bring collaborative advantage way beyond the workplace, the business world, because you dedicate a section at the end of the book to bringing it globally. So how do we make positive impact on politics, on society, and as on, on humanity as a whole? And here you use the inspiring term, a move from survival to survival. Collaborative advantage is a very flexible concept, and it can be applied in almost any context. And I think the, the, the main difference when looking at these kinds of social challenge and global problem um, is not so much the techniques, um, but it's rather, first of all, the context of using the techniques to solve what we, what we might describe as a shared problem, a, a problem that none of us can solve on our own. And secondly, applying those techniques um, collectively across organizations, across governments, across nations. I mean, when we think of the kind of problems that we, the kind of priority problems that we face today, um, so many of them are problems that are really cross-cutting and reach across the capabilities that any of us as individuals or organizations have developed. I mean, no business in the UK that I've been working with, for example, was created to deal with an issue like Brexit, for example. Or if we think on a more macro scale, challenges such as uh, increasing numbers of forced displacements and, and migration, um, the challenge of global inequality, uh, how to regulate and tax global businesses, um, how to, to manage the unforeseeable consequences of ever more complex technology. These are challenges that no one individual, no one organization, no one nation, perhaps even no one region of the world can solve by acting alone. So my sense is that competitive advantage is unlikely to provide the secrets to unlocking the successful resolutions of these problems. And that the kinds of capabilities that we're fostering in the creation of collaborative advantage may actually become among our most important capabilities, even as a species, as you am ambitiously put it, um, in ensuring that we come through these issues to create uh, a future and a present 
that are better than our past. Beautiful way to start wrapping up, Paul. Last thing I'd love to do is share your work. Where can people find you with Pimp My Cause? How can they get involved, etc.? Brilliant. So people can find me on Twitter at iPaulSkinner. They can find me on LinkedIn. Um, they can find me at the Agency of the Future, which is www.theaof.com. And people can join in with Pimp My Cause um, at pimpmycause.org. Uh, and of course, for professional marketers, they can use Pimp My Cause to find the perfect cause partner to support with your marketing talent and in some way that's relevant to you to become an even more accomplished marketer in the process. Last thing for you, the listener, Paul has kindly given me a copy of the book to give away, which I'll do so on LinkedIn, where I share an excerpt from this show. And all you have to do is leave a comment on that or leave a like on that, and I will randomly pick a winner. So Paul Skinner, author of Collaborative Advantage, How Collaboration Beats Competition as a Strategy for Success, Thank you for joining us. And thank you so much, Aidan. It's been a great pleasure to talk with you.